Father, we praise you. We adore you. You are the only one worthy of our praise, the only one worthy of our adoration. We give you the praise and the glory that's due your name. We love you, Lord. We are eternally indebted and grateful for your work through Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and Lord, his, his soon return. We give you thanks and praise in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So if there's uh, a something or things that we want you to walk away with from the past year, and I'm not sure how visible they are from this side, but it's in view of Christ's return, live in hope, fight in faith, and persevere in trials. And I really hope that you have gotten to know the Apostle Paul's heart just a little bit better than when we began this year. So today's our final message in Second Timothy. Next week we will be beginning uh, as a movement towards Christmas and so Advent. And next week we'll be looking at the necessity. Why did Christ need to come in the first place? But today... We have our last message in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. So it was on the morning of April the 4th in 1945 when Hitler's dreams of conquest were collapsing around him like the shelled buildings in Berlin. He was pondering how to keep out the Russians who were at that time only a little over 400 miles away. He was pondering and thinking about how he could keep out the Allies, who were only about 250 miles away. And yet on that morning, even though absolutely consumed with the inevitability of his defeat, he was shown an intelligence report. And that report was based on Admiral Wilhelm Canaris's diary. Now, Canaris had been the head of uh, Hitler's Abwehr, if you speak German, my apologies. That's, anyway, the Nazi intelligence apparatus from 1935 until 1944 when Heinrich Himmler took it over. In that report, a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was implicated in Operation Valkyrie, an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. It was in July of 1944 that Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg planted a small bomb near Hitler, and, and just by quirk, uh, it was moved away from him. Yet the explosion killed several and severely wounded others and very nearly took Hitler's life, bursting an eardrum and literally shredding his pants to bits. Uh, You should go online and look at a photo. It's amazing he was not killed. So now, it was nine months after that, 
1945, and Hitler, as he was reading this intelligence report, it dawned on him that from the very beginning, his head of intelligence, Admiral Canaris, had turned on him. And Hitler was so infuriated, he was beside himself. He flew into a rage, and when he finally calmed down, he issued one of his last orders, liquidate them all. And so it was that the seven mentioned in the report were rounded up. Most of them were already in some sort of confinement anyway. And five days later, they were hung in Flossenburg. While in prison, Bonhoeffer had just finished a sermon. He was preaching from Isaiah where, interestingly enough, he mentioned Timothy. When the SS burst in and they demanded that he leave with them. And walking out the door as he was leaving, uh, he turned to a fellow prisoner, a fellow by the name of Sigismund Best, who was a captured British spy, And he asked him if he would deliver a message. Of course, Best said. And Bonhoeffer said this, Tell the bishop, I believe in the principle of our universal Christian brotherhood, which rises above all national interests. Our victory is certain. And then Best said, Goodbye, my friend. And then Bonhoeffer said this, Farewell, this is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. And so it was that a short time later, he was, he, Canaris, and five other senior officers were were hung. Two days after that, the Allies liberated Buchenwald. Nine days after that, Flossenburg was liberated. A week later, Hitler committed suicide. And the following week, Germany unconditionally surrendered. Bonhoeffer, imprisoned by a madman, wrote letters from his prison cell, and in his last sermon on earth, he mentioned Timothy. In his last known words, as I just read to you, he expressed the hope of the Apostle Paul that death was not the end. It was only the beginning And as such, there are so many ways in which he parallels the end of the Apostle Paul's life that in 2017, a movie about Bonhoeffer was made. Very good, by the way, if you care to watch it. And it was entitled, Come Before Winter. Why? Uh, aside from the obvious parallels, why would Paul write that, come before winter? It's, it's because no one is foolish enough to sail the Mediterranean once winter started. I mean, even in this uh, country, uh, and uh, tip of the hat uh, to my son-in-law, uh, my daughter, and my four uh, uh, border babies, uh, grandchildren who are Canadian and American, Gordon Lightfoot sang this song. In a musty old hall in Detroit, they prayed in the Maritime Sailors Cathedral. The bell, the church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend 
lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitche Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. This is something that every sailor knows and understands, that it's dangerous business. What Paul was saying was that if Timothy waited until after winter, it would be spring and Paul would already be gone. Now, we don't know whether the apostle uh, Paul was greeted by uh, Timothy before uh, he died or not. But nevertheless, his point was, it's now or it's never. So winter in this context was, was literal, but it's also figurative. And, and the Greeks used it as we do, metaphorically. Winter is a time, right, when, uh, when warmth leaves us. Uh, and we need shelter and extra clothing. You know, I tell you, this is an amazing thing. In the summer, when your house is 76 degrees, it feels so hot. In the winter, when it says it's 76 degrees, it ain't. It, it's, it just feels cold as the wind is blowing through. It's the, when the songbirds uh, flee, right? The leaves, they, they turn brown. The skies are gray. The storms are on the horizon. Winter storms are metaphorical of hardship and difficulty. And like Bonhoeffer, or I should say like Paul, Bonhoeffer was awaiting imminent death. And all of us, whether it's death or some other hardship or trial, we all are experiencing at one time or another in our lives seasons of winter. And in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22, these are the last known words of Paul. And it's for us to, I think, absorb them. I mean, even in Bonhoeffer's last words, what was he talking about? He wanted an Anglican bishop to understand that the Lutheran church that had been co-opted by Hitler should not be persecuted at all, but that this universal brotherhood should supersede that and not push them away, but bring them in. In fact, if you're not aware of it, his life, he was safe and sound in America. He was quite comfortable here, but he went back to Germany because he knew that he could not take part in the rebuilding of the German church if he had not walked the walk. In Paul's final words, he too tells us what's most important on his mind. Not surprisingly, uh, it's about relationships. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful for me to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, 
for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Those are the last words that we have of the Apostle Paul. And he begins, uh, he ends, I should say, his book, this letter, as he began. And that's the centrality of relationships. As you'll recall, at the beginning in chapter 1, what does he talk about? He talks about Timothy, he talks about Lois, he talks about Eunice. And now he's ending with Mark and Aquila and Priscilla and others. Paul wanted Timothy to know something. He wanted to know how to handle relationships that healed and relationships that hurt. C.S. Lewis wrote, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So Lewis is giving the options, that, and the same options that each one of us has, the same options that the Apostle Paul was talking about. Either you protect yourself to the point where nothing comes in, but nothing goes out either. It's, 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 it's rock hard and, and it's impenetrable. Or option two, you can love and you can get hurt. And, and you will get hurt if you love, even if it's not intentional. It, uh, things happen. And what I would say is choose to love. Believers must choose to risk. It must choose to allow people into our lives Choose to, as a consequence of that, if, if there's hurt, okay. But nevertheless, let people see the real you. Let you see them. Lean into community. Uh, and so, Paul gives us five relationship principles, I think, that will help us, that will serve us, particularly during winter season in our times of trial. First and foremost is this, when we're, when we're lonely, we need caring and close companions. 
what Paul says here. Do your best to come to me soon. And then he, he says uh, just a little bit later, do your best to come before winter. It's important for us to understand that God made us for relationships. God does not applaud rugged individualism. Never has, never will. Not in ministry. Throughout Paul's letters, uh, and then the book of Acts as well, Paul mentions at least over a hundred different people who were at one point or another significant to him in his ministry, whether it was co-workers or friends. And Paul was not a lone ranger. He, he knew that he could not complete the task that the Lord had given him alone. It's, that was especially true in his final hours. So there's these two times, do your best. A synonym of this word... That word didn't come down to us in English, but so that you'll understand what he's saying is a synonym for that word that came into English is where we get our word tachometer from. In other words, uh, come as fast as you can. Make haste. Be speedy. Get up and, and, and go. Paul needed Timothy to be there before winter because uh, after that it would have been possible. And he asked him to bring his, his cloak and his books and parchments and, and mark. Uh, you know, so I mean, it's, it's true that we need to, when we're in those kinds of trials in our lives, we need to reach out to others. Because our tendency is what? Our tendency is to isolate. Our tendency is to go inside. Our tendency is not to reach out. Solomon said, though, that two people are better than one. Uh, because they uh, can reap more benefit from their labor, he says. For if they fall, one will help his companion up, but pity the person who falls down and has no one to help him. Moreover, a three-stranded cord is not quickly broken. So we need to be in community with one another. Second, we need to continue ministering to other people, even when we're in a season of winter, even when it's difficult for us. I mean, notice here, I mentioned them to you just a minute ago, Paul's words, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in ministry. Paul's stated reason is that get him and bring him because he's useful to me, very useful. And you need to remember that Paul and Barnabas, they, they once had a falling out over uh, Mark and Paul said, no, we're not coming on the, uh, his second missionary journey. However, now Mark was helpful to him. A little very important principle to take from this is that our past does not need to control our present or our future. Mark not only returned to the ministry, uh, but he also uh, wrote the gospel bearing his name. And, and also this shows that Paul's drive was to, while he was alive, he was going uh, to, to minister. If there was ever a time to focus on himself, that would be it. One would think, awaiting his uh, death, he would be able to say, no, this is the time that I need uh, for self-reflection, that I need to focus on myself. But that's not what he did. That's not what Bonhoeffer did. It's certainly not what Christ did. Philippians 2, 3 through 5, we 
read, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Even when we're feeling pressed in upon, we need to minister to others. And, and it is true that we also need seasons of rest and uh, recovery. The Lord himself pulled aside on a number of occasions so that he could do this. So I'm not just saying, you know, uh, what one, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to rust out for the Lord. I'm going to uh, wear out. So uh, I, I understand the notion, but that doesn't mean you can't take time and set it aside. Third, cling to the Scripture. I mean, when you come, he says, bring the cloak I left and also the books and above all the parchments. Now, uh, so what were the cloaks, uh, the scrolls, uh, the parchments? Some, some say uh, books. They didn't have books the same way that we think of books. So he's talking about scrolls and he's talking about parchments and he makes a separation, a distinction between those two things, which I think is uh, significant. But why would they have been left in the first place? Number one, uh, you don't leave your cloak. Back in that day, you just didn't go down to the corner store and say, hey, you know, I, you know, it's not like you get off the plane and you go somewhere and say, oh, I forgot my coat. Well, okay, go buy one. That's not the way it worked. They were hard to come by and you didn't, you didn't leave them. They were so precious that they were able to even be used in uh, financial exchanges as collateral. Uh, so why would he have left that? It would have been under uh, certain circumstances. We don't know, but whatever it, it, it was, it seems that perhaps that's where he was arrested in Troas. He didn't have an opportunity. They just took him away, and those things were left. But it's clear that even when Paul knew his death was imminent, he wanted to keep studying the Word of God. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, who never, he never pulled any punches anyway, but Spurgeon used this passage when he would uh, try to get uh, pastors to, to study. Uh, he said, he, meaning uh, Paul, he is inspired and yet he wants books. He has been preaching for at least 30 years and yet he wants books. Uh, he had seen the Lord and yet he wants books. He had had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. Similarly, I, I believe that when he's talking about the parchments, he's talking about uh, the Word of God uh, as opposed to the books, the scrolls, which would be perhaps other kinds of uh, writings. But it's the Word of God that will bring you warmth and sense in the midst of uh, the cold days of winter. And fourth, we really need to offer grace when people fail us. I mean, for you, you have this situation with Demas, which had to have been incredibly heartbreaking for Paul. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Alexander the coppersmith, uh, did me a great harm. And then 
this amazing reflection of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in Paul's life. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I mean, it sounds like something that Jesus had said on the cross. But Demas, we know from other places, uh, had been a faithful co-worker with Paul. So this would have been a terrible disappointment and pain. But he says Demas had left because he loved this present world. Now, understand that associating with the Apostle Paul could have led to his imprisonment and his death. And, uh, but it does seem that Demas chose the worldly security as opposed to Christ. And then Alexander. We're not exactly if Alexander is the same Alexander that he mentions in 1 Timothy or another Alexander, which would have given him a kind of a very interesting uh, character arc. But you have Alexander the metal worker. Perhaps he was a made idols or something, and he lost business. We see that in Acts 19. But he said he did me a great deal of harm. Now, interestingly enough, is this can be translated as this way. He charged me. So it appears in, like in a court, like a charge. And so it's, it's a fascinating thing how the coppersmith charged me uh, you know, where he says it did me a great deal of harm. He charged me, that, and that was probably in court. And then how the Apostle Paul said, those who deserted him, do not uh, charge them. So the, Paul's response to Alexander's uh, crime was the, the Lord would re- repay him according to his deeds. So this is a, a, this is a significant principle when we're facing winters of the soul. Because our tendency is to cut into people. Our tendency is to, as they may have said in the ancient times, to call down a curse on them. But that's not what Paul did. What Paul did, he wasn't calling a curse down on Alexander. He was simply saying that the Lord will do justly, period. The Lord will repay Alexander in accordance with his deeds. He didn't say... You know, it wasn't an imprecatory psalm. God, you know, smash Alexander's uh, teeth. May he be caught in his own trap or something like that. No, not at all. He was just saying God uh, will be just. And w- when facing these kinds of winters in our soul, we, we have to be aware that it's a real possibility that someone around us that we ha- trust that we have confided in, in fact, that we have leaned on, will fail us. It is true that sometimes those that we consider closest to us may ultimately walk out on us and not reach back, maybe because they're afraid, maybe they don't know what to say, or, or, or whatever it is. But regardless, harm comes in relationships sometimes it's unintentional completely other times it's not but however the failures manifest uh, we can be sure that that's a part of life and how we handle that 
becomes very important because how we handle that is a measure, I think, of how we understand Christ's forgiveness to us. And how should we respond when others hurt us? Well, how did Paul do it? What he did was he blessed them. At the, at the Christian's failure in Rome to support him, he said, may it not be charged against them. He blessed them, asking God to forgive them, even as Christ did. And Scripture calls us to do the same in Romans 12. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing those things, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We must overcome evil with good by entrusting the battles that we're facing to the Lord and blessing those who do us harm. Finally, trust in God's faithfulness, where he says, But the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles here. So it, it, he was not abandoned. He was strengthened and held up by the Lord. Even though all others had forsaken him, Christ had not. So it, Paul goes on to say that, he, that the Lord's going to deliver him from, uh, from every evil attack and, and bring him uh, safely into heaven there in verse 18. Obviously, Paul did not mean uh, that Christ would deliver him from execution. He already knew he was going to be executed. He, he was already, that my departure's near, I'm already being poured out. I think that what Paul was thinking was probably the same thing uh, Bonhoeffer was, was thinking. And that was this, that regardless of the outcome of this present moment, I will leave this dungeon a free man. I will be free. And for us, if we're going to faithfully face the winter seasons that come into our life, in the trials and the tribulations that we go through, we have to trust in the Lord. What should we do if we lack trust? I mean, some, all of us, I believe, at one point or another in our Christian walk, struggle with uh, doubts in the middle of painful experiences. Some struggle longer, uh, some shorter, but we all struggle. I, I want to, just in closing, talk about, for a moment, John the Baptist. As, as he sat in Herod Antipas' uh, prison, waiting for execution, he, he had doubt. He sent a couple of his faithful servants to Jesus, and, and they asked him, they came to him and they said, John wants to ask this question, and that is this, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, if you've ever experienced any doubt, I want you to place yourself squarely, not in Thomas's, uh, Thomas, who actually, I think that's a misnomer, doubting Thomas. I want you to put your feet in the feet of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who knew Jesus was the Messiah before anybody else, essentially 
when Mary comes to Elizabeth, it was John that recognized the presence of Jesus. And then Elizabeth goes, oh, John knew before his mom knew. You know, that this Jesus, I mean, think about him when he approached, when Jesus approached him on the Jordan in Bethany and John shouted, he could not contain himself. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptized him. And not only baptized him, he saw the Spirit of God descend on him. Yet now, he's hanging out in Herod's filthy prison. And he probably was surprised at this feeling because... You know, they wanted him dead. And he couldn't see any reason why they wouldn't, wouldn't kill him. But he had these doubts. And so off they went. He had no comfort. They sent, uh, he sent them to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Let me explain to you. Uh, pull the curtain back what happens in glory in heaven when you experience those doubts. Jesus replied this, Tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. John knew all of that from Isaiah. Jesus knew that that's what would comfort John, but that's not what I want our focus to be on. It's what Jesus said about John immediately upon leaving. When Jesus tells them after John has expressed doubt in the very purpose that Jesus was there, or as him being the fulfillment of that, and what Jesus said was no one No one born of woman had ever been greater. On the heels of John's doubt, Jesus proclaimed none greater. Bonhoeffer was engaged in immense struggle against wrong, and he was executed in the process. So Paul was, so Jesus was. And while Paul and Bonhoeffer are models for us to follow, only Jesus, only the death of Jesus has the power to bring life. And he gave his life that we might have life. And in the winter's seasons of our lives, that we would have warmth to cling to by trusting in God and understanding that His will is good, whether it's to protect us, whether it's to remove us, whether it's for us to go through it, that's His decision. And in any case, uh, we will be free. Father, we are thankful that You have given to us a pathway Lord, through Christ, a pathway to live and be in right relationship with you for eternity. 
But here on earth, you've given us a pathway to live in such a way that brings you honor and glory, even in the winter seasons of our life, even when it's so difficult we can barely see tomorrow. You've given us a pathway in relationships, those that heal, those that harm, as to how to uh, be. And uh, Lord, you chose in your infinite wisdom to love us, and you suffered because of that. May we do the same through your power. Through Christ our Lord, amen.